The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. On November 25th, 1970, the most famous novelist in Japan finished the fourth book in the tetralogy that is now considered his masterpiece. He dropped off the work with his publisher, then went and stormed an army headquarters in Tokyo. After he and four of his followers took the commander hostage, he appeared on a balcony before a crowd of a thousand and called for an uprising that would overthrow the Japanese government and return Japan to its pre-war society, exhorting the crowd to swear allegiance to the emperor. When the coup fizzled out, he stepped back inside, pulled out a sword, and plunged it into his own stomach, committing seppuku, the ritualized suicide by disembowelment. A loyal comrade was there to help decapitate him, which was also part of the plan. His name was Yukio Mishima, and his dramatic death was the capstone to a tumultuous life, with artistic highs matched by the intensity of his political ideas. Rarely has a major literary figure worked so hard to mold his identity, and yet, like a man with a million masks, the reality is elusive, which is perhaps just as it should be. How did this man go from his boyhood in a distinguished family to a serious contender for the Nobel Prize for Literature, to a man killing himself in a dramatic effort that experts say was not just a cutting off of his life, but its very culmination. We'll have the astonishing story of Yukio Mishima today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, episode 312 of this struggling little podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join us today. Yukio Mishima. We're 50 years beyond him now. Time for history to start to take a reckoning. He was close to being a household name in the 60s and early 70s in America, and certainly in Japan. He was also an actor, a bodybuilder, a musician, many other. He wore many hats. Hats and masks, that's the story of Mishima. You can see footage of him in films, and even that, there's many photographs of him. A lot of them are staged, very stylized, and even you can see color footage of that fateful moment on the balcony as he exhorts the crowd, a crowd who can't hear him very well. He's a character who believed in art, with an incredible intensity, but he also believed in ritual and fantasy and many other things as well. Death and beauty and art, sex. His mind was a tangle of these things. He functioned perfectly, seemingly reasonably, very rational in his daily life, apparently, and yet he was an enigma. His death shocked the world. So let's do one thing before we get started here. Much of what we have today is what I'll call bleak. It's fascinating, but it's a little bleak. I'm not sure we'll be laughing too much when we talk about Mishima. His books do have a kind of sense of humor, and they're great literature. Although his politics came to dominate his worldview, his books aren't stentorian or dogmatic. There's a bit of wry humor in there, a light touch. But we'll talk about his works more on Thursday, the next episode. Today we're going to focus on his life. Because that's enough. <laughs> that's enough for one episode. And in his life, I find it hard to point out the humor, partly because so much of it was artifice, but mostly because so much of it seems to have been pain. And so I frankly fell behind in preparing this one. It's not easy cranking these scripts out sometimes, people. Doing all this research, getting ready to roll, Getting, making myself sit down in the chair and turn on this microphone. I'm not complaining. I know it's part of the job. It's all part of the job, but it does take some energy. And sometimes coffee just can't provide it. Speaking of coffee, I do thank those of you who have bought me virtual coffees lately. There's been a flurry. Someone bought me four cups the other day. How wonderful is that? I felt like 
She and I were sitting together for a nice leisurely chat at some beautiful coffee shop. The pandemic was over, of course. A cup for me, a cup for her, and then another one for both of us. Thank you very much. Let's just sit here chatting. That's at historyofliterature.com slash shop, where you can buy those virtual coffees if you're interested in throwing a little, throwing a few coins in my cup. But that's not why I brought this up. I was telling you that I was dragging a little bit and caffeine was not enough. I was postponing the recording, reading about Mishima, reading, just reading and reading and reading and wrestling with him and his works and feeling kind of weighed down. It's a wild ride. An incredibly eventful 45 years, both in Japanese history and in his own life, as those two things overlapped. So it's fun to read about it, but then to talk about it, for some reason, I just couldn't drag myself to the mic. And then, just when I needed a pick-me-up, I got this email. Do we have some music for this one? No, 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 that's, no. Two, that's, that, that's not the right mood, no. Sorry. You got anything else? Something a little more grand? Uh, eh. I don't know. Anything else? Something a little more grand. Epic. Here we go. Yes. Yes. Build. Build. Nice. Yes. Here we go. A little tag there. Hmm, intriguing. Subject, hello once again. Which is also intriguing. Hello once again, a repeat customer. Although sometimes, subject line like that. Hello once again. Sometimes it makes me cringe. I think maybe I missed the first one. Maybe it's one of my enemies. (laughs) Maybe it was a piece of hate mail. Hello once again. Doesn't <laughs> could go either way. I said hello. I'm saying it again. Well, let's see who we have. Dear Jack, that sounds good. Email says it's been a long time since I and my husband last wrote to you, maybe over three years or so. Oh boy. Could it be? Husband, don't tell me. I'm starting to get excited now. Back to the email. We are the couple who got engaged thanks to your podcast. Yes. Oh, boy. How are you? Do you guys ever do this where you haven't heard from someone in a while and so you assume it's going to be bad news? You find it hard to reach out and touch base because you think, well, what if what if their parents died or their spouse or they got a bad diagnosis? I'd better not email. I'd better wait. So I've been waiting. It's been three years. Really? That long? This podcast was just a... A baby back then. Poor little thing, squawking away in its crib. I love babies, but come on. This podcast, we were barely scraping by back then. But we had a nice moment when the couple found one another through the podcast. They had, I think they had been together, and then they broke up, and then they reunited because they shared an episode of the podcast with each other. Hope I've got that right. Well, the podcast was little back then, but it's getting bigger now. We've grown, people. So back to the email. Hopefully it's not bad news. Back to the email. It says, I've thought about writing you again several times over the years to weigh in on various episodes. The Tolstoy one was a particular favorite, but did not want to steal your attention away from other listeners whose lives you have also touched. Oh, that is so sweet. That is so thoughtful. I'm just astounded by you people. My listeners, look at me. I'm choking up. You guys are the best people in the world. But hopefully, hopefully you don't have bad news for me. Not the hammer. No, not today. Not on Mishima Day. I'm not sure I can handle it. It might break me. Back to the email. But then, a few episodes ago, you mentioned us again, saying something along the lines of, maybe that couple is drinking coffee and listening to this episode now. You hit the nail on the head. We were drinking coffee on our porch in Nairobi, Kenya, where we have since moved from New York for work. 
I used the History of Literature mug you sent us at the UN here and the tote bag when I go grocery shopping and always get questions. <laughs> oh, what a nice email. How could it get any better? Next paragraph. We also have a new addition to the family, a three-month-old named Jude. Oh. Hmm. She says, I'm noting his name just because you're a Beatles fan. Smiley face. Oh, the smiley face is all mine. Thus, smiley face and weepy face. Thus, your podcast, she says, is even responsible for bringing new life into the world. Wow, a baby. A baby. We have a baby. Yes, people. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. This is the best. Ah, yes, life is sailing along, people. We put these two together, and now we have Jude. Little Jude. Dear, sweet, little Jude. What do you think, Paul? Hey, Jude. Yes, exactly. Can you imagine being able to sing like that? Just those two words? <laughs> to be able to start off a song like that. Okay. Exactly. That's exactly how I feel. Hey, Jude. How is Jude doing? Are you taking care of Jude? I hope so. We've been busy. Here she says, we've been busy buying him whatever kinds of books we can find here in the hopes he will learn to love reading as we do. I'm revisiting some of your kid-focused episodes now, but would love to know if there are any tips you haven't already mentioned that helped with your sons. As always, Jack, we're very grateful for your podcasts, which are a comfort to us, especially as we navigate new parenthood and need a friendly voice in our ears. Please add Nairobi to the world tour. Best and thank you, Angela and Mahmoud. Boy, okay, let's go. I am fired up now. Let's go with Little Jude, our History of Literature podcast baby. <laughs> Nairobi is definitely on the tour. Mike and I are going to be busy. I don't know if I can improve upon the advice I've given in the past about kids and reading. Just read often. Let them see you reading. Read your own books out loud. Let Jude hear the sound of the words and know in that little brain of his that his mama and his papa are nearby. I read with feeling, always with feeling. I think that helps. Don't just rattle on. Don't drone away like a machine. It doesn't have to be a performance, but be engaged and alert and be transferring that love of those words on that page and that story. Be transferring that love to those little ears. His mind will soak it all up. You will be amazed. There are periods where kids go through this language acquisition phase and I swear this is true. You can read them books and they can recite them back to you word for word, whole sentences, whole paragraphs. It doesn't last forever, but while it does, it's magical. You will love it. So congratulations to you, Angela and Mahmoud and Jude. Best wishes. Thank you so much for the email. So let's take a quick break. And we'll come back. Actually, let's do something else first. We started with the death and we were working toward that. But let's we're going to look at his life in two parts today. One is his youth, roughly up, roughly, roughly up to World War II. The other is his life after the war until his death in 1970. We're going to look at his life until he publishes his first book that made him famous. And then we'll look at, we'll take another break and we'll look at the second part of his life after that. So here's another way to start. You know, this trick of you start with the end and then you build up to that. We started with the suicide on the balcony and then we were building up to that. Let's do another one of those for the first part of his life. This is a newspaper response by an unknown author. Then he was unknown. It's Yukio Mishima. He was then age 23. Not a well-known author at this point. Just a contributor to this newspaper. This is, 
This is, like I said, we're dividing his life in half. So the first 23 years led to this moment, this newspaper response. And then the next 22 years led to the ritualized suicide. So here's the start of his career. Was that complicated enough? <laughs> it doesn't need to be that complicated. <laughs> A life in two parts, unknown and then known. Here we are with the unknown. Here's how it ends. He's 23 years old. It's 1948 in Tokyo, and there had been a bizarre robbery and mass poisoning at, the, at a branch of a Tokyo bank. Twelve people were killed. The police investigated for months, and they couldn't find the perpetrator. Finally, with no leads and under a lot of pressure from the public, they went into the arts community and arrested a painter. Not a hugely famous painter, but well-known in certain circles, popular. They arrested him on flimsy evidence. The arts community rose up. They were outraged. This was an interference by the state. The police had, and the literary community joined in. They said, what are you doing? You had no evidence. This is bias against the arts. This man is an artist. How dare you smear him with these allegations? Some even said, how could a man of high culture and refinement like this one, how could he have committed this vile act? The newspaper printed all of these responses like that. How dare you? This is slanderous. This is outrageous. You clumsy police, you tools of the state, you've smeared an artist, you've smeared the art world, and so on. And one person printed a different kind of response. This response said, quote, It was obvious to me from the start that this unprecedented and extraordinary crime was joined in a secret contract with the problem of beauty. What? What? What a sentence. The problem of beauty, the secret contract. This crime was joined in a secret contract with the problem of beauty. That's an interesting sentence. That's a puzzle. Response goes on to say, This crime was so far beyond the norm that motivation is irrelevant. <laughs> Another odd sentence. We're talking about a crime here. This guy's in a different world. He's assessing things by a different standard. Right? Motivation is irrelevant. Okay. Back to the response. The perpetrator's profound insensitivity toward human suffering and misery was matched by an exquisite sensitivity toward his own action that suffused his unique imaginative powers. Clearly, an act that should have been carried out conceptually within the world of beauty had, for some reason, veered in the wrong direction and spilled outward. Considered in purely aesthetic terms, this crime was ugly. But it was not an essential ugliness. It was the ugliness revealed when the good and evil of mankind the creative possibilities that we call humanity were condensed into a single event, a crime. Works of art are things of imperfect beauty. If ever a work of art is made perfect, it becomes a crime. End quote. Astonishing. You see, even at this early age, 23, Mishima, a man who is thinking of action and life, as part of a fantasy, as part of art, a project, actions have aesthetic value and should be judged on that scale. A crime as victims and so on, but it's also a potential symbol of one's life, of one's achievement, of one's art. Sex is the same, one's body is the same, and so is death. All his life, Mishima held views like this, and he wrote about them, and he acted them out on film, and sometimes... He acted them out in real life until the final ending when it was all very real and very artistic too. If ever a work of art is made perfect, it becomes a crime. He was terrified not of death in those final days, but of being stopped. That his ritualized suicide would be interrupted and he would find himself living in disgrace. But this guy in the newspaper, how did he get there? We'll talk about his background and his unusual childhood after this. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Yukio Mishima. We'll call him that, even though his birth name was different. Mishima was born into a distinguished Tokyo family. His father was a government official. His ancestors were famous, came from a distinguished lineage. One grandfather was a scholar of Chinese classics, and a great-grandfather had been a Supreme Court justice. His grandmother had been raised in the household of a prince, and she traced her lineage back to the founder of the Tokugawa shogunate the feudal military government that ruled Japan from 1660 to 1868. It was a lost era, a world of strict class or caste hierarchy with the lords at the top just above the samurai warriors. The shogunate gave way to the empire in the late 19th century, but the grandmother continued it in spirit, the chivalry, the sense of honor, the noble stories. She herself married a bureaucrat, and times were changing. The second ruler of this version of the Japanese Empire was not strong, and Japan was affected by the Great Depression. Things were changing. The old ways were being lost. The successor to the second emperor was Hirohito, who would soon become more famous to the world as the Japanese emperor during World War II. Hirohito was roughly 24 when Mishima was born, and he assumed power when Mishima was a young child. So that was the world Mishima grew up in, this recovery of an empire, of a stronger emperor, but it was not to last. Mishima's parents and grandmother were influential on him, especially the grandmother. His father believed in military discipline and would do things like hold Mishima when he was a baby up to a speeding train to get him used to the sound and noise, toughen him up. His mother was more gentle and would intervene, but then his grandmother took over, announcing that the child was frail and needed serious protection she took him away from his parents and siblings, his immediate family, and she kept him in a room. Wouldn't let him go out into the sunlight. Said he was too frail, would expose him, would be dangerous to him, and he couldn't play with the other boys who were playing outside. He wasn't allowed to play sports at all. So he spent his time mostly alone, once in a while with some female cousins who came by with their dolls. He could play with those. Meanwhile, his father was worried that the style of child-raising was too soft. By the time Mishima returned to his immediate family, he was, he was kept like that by his grandmother in that room until he was 12. By the way, those are formative years. And on top of everything else, she would have violent outbursts. Later he wrote about a woman who was ill and needed attention, and the child had to take care of the grandmother. Very unusual kind of situation, intense, a pressure cooker for this little guy. By the time he was returned to his parents, he had developed some unusual habits. He took to the theater. They took him to see Kabuki and the no dramas. He took to the theater in what seems now almost like desperation, a, a sort of recognition a way of escape, a way of believing in fantasy. He knew that theater was for him. 
he was play acting too. His grandmother, by the way, had also been a great one for stories, and he'd grown grown up reading myths and poetry and classics. He also read works in translation like Oscar Wilde and Thomas Mann and Baudelaire and Nietzsche. His father thought that the literary angle, the literary aspects of was a little effeminate, and when Mishima started writing stories and poems of his own when he was 12 and 13 and 14, his father would burst into his room searching for the literature so he could rip them up and leave it in shreds, trying to keep Mishima on a different path. By the time the boy was 16, He was confused. He was focused mainly on prose now, and he was very good. He was already an accomplished writer. He was writing stories about Japanese history, and he had narrators who would describe their feeling of being connected to the past as if the ancestors were living within him and through him. He also believed in Shinto, the Japanese indigenous religion, and has a strong connection to nature, and he was starting to become aware of his homosexuality. These all made it into his stories. His peers and the editors of journals were struck by his historical awareness, his look to the past, and his young maturity. He was doing well in school. He graduated at the top of his class, and his school was prestigious enough that the emperor himself attended the graduation ceremony. War had broken out. Now, this was the early 1940s when Mishima was in his mid-teens, and Mishima was devoted to the emperor and to the cause of war. He expected to join the military upon graduation. Long live the emperor, he wrote in a letter to his parents the night before he was headed off to take his physical before joining. He included nail clippings and locks of his hair in the letter in case he was killed, as many people were. And then they were going off to fight in the Philippines. And then he went to his medical physical. He had always been frail, but he he didn't pass one exactly. And then he took a second one. He turned up with a cold, and he wound up being misdiagnosed with tuberculosis, and they sent him home. The army deemed him unfit. They didn't want him. Not good enough. Body's not good enough. This was a deeply affecting moment for him. He valued masculinity and nobility and courage. The cast of the the warrior cast of the samurai soldiers were in his mind. He loved those stories and he had this loyalty to the emperor. He wanted to serve. He admired kamikaze pilots and hoped that he himself would become part of a special attack unit. And instead, the reality was that he was an artist, a writer. Unfit, deemed unfit, declared unfit, too frail to be a soldier, too frail for action. Not long after that, he started a regime of martial arts and bodybuilding, using the weightlifting, the training to transform himself into what he had not been during the war. When the war ended, Japan surrendered. The emperor himself announced it on the radio to the public. Mishima was 20, listened to this speech, and was greatly moved by it. In this moment of national weakness, he vowed to help Japan recover its pride through a valuing of Japanese art and culture and institutions, the proud history. That's where he wanted Japan to go. Look to the past. Look to our proud history. His inclination was not to look forward to a welcoming of the West, to a moment of humbling, to an opening up of Japan, to the victorious allied forces or the West in general, a cosmopolitan Japan, a globalized Japan. Instead, he looked back. He did a lot of reading. He liked manga, but he didn't like the stories with cosmopolitan themes or broad humanity idea, let's all get along and all that. He didn't like those. He liked the ones with samurai, the ones with a a noble warrior standing against the tide and dying nobly if necessary. That was where he stood. 
at this point in his life, a young man who was excellent at writing, who was artistic, but whose father hated what he perceived as the effeminacy of the art and the arts. A man, Mishima, whose own homosexuality was at odds in a way with his valuing of masculine honor and the sacrifice of war, but in another way it wasn't so much at odds. It was a glorification of the beauty of the male body. Maybe not his body at this point, but one he would turn his body into. And he was someone who loved the emperor and what he stood for, a strong imperial Japan, a Japan that grew out of a long and proud Japanese tradition, centuries of pride and the empire that it led to, but who was now humbled by the events of World War II. Japan was at a crossroads, and many of these inflection points were the ones most important to Mishima personally, where he was at a crossroads, age 20. 21, 22, that's a crossroads for anyone. And the direction that Japan as a society took was not always the one that Mishima himself would have taken. That takes us up to the bank robbery we discussed earlier and his writing in the newspaper. A year after he wrote that unusual statement, he published his novel, Confessions of a Mask, which launched his career. He was 23 years old. Let's take another break and then look at the career the next 22 years when Mishima was writing and acting and doing everything else that led up to that fateful day on the balcony. After Confessions of a Mask was published in 1949, Mishima became well-known and an established figure in the world of Japanese letters. In the novel, the mask is worn by a man who had to hide his true sexuality. And this is definitely an important part of Mishima's story, that he was gay at a time and in a place when that was not accepted. And his struggle to realize himself and who he was and to fit this with his views of the world informed his life. But masks is a good metaphor for Mishima. Masks, plural. It's a good metaphor for Mishima in the next 20 years. A man who wore many masks and at the center is something unknowable. The mask begins to talk. Perhaps only a devotion to art is there. If we're looking for the core of Mishima, a devotion to life, sex, death, beauty, personhood, all leading to a transcendent moment where those things unite in a single staged act. Paul Schrader who wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, made a biographical film about Mishima. He knew it wasn't going to do well. He got, I think it was Steven Spielberg and George Lucas to give him $10 million to make the film. They, it was money they wrote off just because they wanted to see the movie. They knew they wouldn't make it back. The movie made $500,000 in the United States. Schrader said that the Japanese were very protective of Mishima, Along the lines of, you know, to say that a foreigner couldn't really understand him, which is a little daunting for a podcaster to begin. But Schrader points out that this isn't really because they just think you Americans can't understand uh, someone who's Japanese. It's that they don't necessarily understand him either. There's a lot that's mysterious, unknowable, inconsistent, puzzling, Maybe there are many Mishimas, many complexities to Mishima, and to try to find a single explanation or to reduce the complexity to some unifying theory, that's to be resisted. Point taken. We're not going to try to understand or present an explanation. There's no secret key that I know of to magically unlock anything here. We're going to present the facts of his life, some of the unusual aspects of it, and take you from 1925 to 1970. The moment in 1970, you might say, was one his whole life was pointing toward. Not like someone doomed to a certain fate, but a being that was pushing toward that fate himself. He designed the ending and lived his life aimed at it. How did he get there? So, he had befriended, when he was a young writer, he had befriended a more famous writer, Kawabata, who helped Mishima. And years later, sort of beat him in their unofficial race for the Nobel Prize for Literature. He 
wanted two years before Mishima died. But they were friends and fellow supporters. Mishima knew when Kawabata won the Nobel Prize that it probably wasn't going to be awarded to him for some time. Just in the nature of things, most of the time a single country doesn't win twice within a five-year period, let's say. So he knew that that was it for him. He wasn't going to last long enough to win it. The two of them, Kawabata and Mishima, although they were rivals in that sense for who is the greatest living Japanese writer, they were friends, fellow supporters. Kawabata was 25 years older than Mishima, and he was quite taken by Mishima when he met him as a young man and as he watched his career, and he committed suicide himself two years after Mishima did. He didn't leave behind the legacy of having thought about or imagined or dreamed of or hoped or planned for suicide for years, decades, the way that Mishima had. Instead, Kawabata's ending is, in that sense, more sad and more routine, the kind of thing we see more often. He had nightmares following Mishima's suicide, complained that it was 200, 300 nights in a row of nightmares about Mishima. He was haunted. He believed that Mishima's specter was haunting him. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Confessions of a Mask, back to 1949. Confessions of a Mask also takes us into a fictionalized version of Mishima's childhood room, the sickly sweet smell of his grandmother's room. In the novel, it's a lightly modified version of what Mishima went through with a delicate boy protagonist who's basically a captive helping to take care of this ill woman as she keeps him indoors and prevents him from playing outside with the other kids, the other boys. The boy's mind turns to fantasy, believing in stories, living them out, and fantasy blurs into reality. When he sees the theater, he is immediately smitten. Here, too, is a world where one plays a role, where gesture and symbol are as real as reality, if not more. He has violent daydreams, imagining muscular men and boys who commit acts of courage and violence, and he himself is an actor, too. His appearance matters, and he must turn himself into something not deviant, but normal, quote-unquote. Something worthy of being a soldier. He can't be a homosexual. He must be something else, something different. As the book puts it, quote, the reluctant masquerade had begun, end quote. Mishima was obsessed with youth and with death. One of his most famous sayings was that the beautiful must die young and the ugly should live forever. He added that 95% of the public got it wrong. Beautiful people live too long and hideous fools drop dead at 21. It's a very strange idea when you think about it. If he wants ugly people to live as long as they can, then he should have no problem with beautiful people not dying because they too will be ugly. But that's what Mishima is saying is the problem. Not just being ugly, but losing your beauty, turning from beautiful to ugly. It's better to die young than that. And the other half of that is something, too. It's hideous fools dropping dead at 21. Why would he care about that? It's as if they're taking the good deaths, the admirable deaths. If they're hideously ugly, hideous fools, and they die at 21, well, what's the point of that? This particular argument was in an essay about James Dean. But the themes are in his fiction, too. The beauty... Remember when he said, the beauty, the perfect art becomes a crime. The beauty of death, the perfect death. All this is in there. Everything that happened in 1970 is written about, predicted, foreshadowed, discussed. You can easily trace back those events of his suicide to themes in his work, and yet it was hard to take people to take him too seriously at the time because he was mostly known as a novelist. He appeared to be struggling with these issues himself. If you read his works in retrospectively, you can see it, but then again, at the time, it was fiction, right? So maybe it was just a, 
an area of interest for him. He got married in 1953. He kept writing novels. We'll have more on that on Thursday when we look more deeply at his bibliography and his works and the style and all of that. Instead, let's turn to the 1960s when he was in his mid-30s, 35 in 1960. And as he got older and he turned himself into kind of a, a personalized version of an art object or an artistic realization. I don't mean an object like a statue, although there is some elements of that with his muscles. It was the embodiment of what he thought life and beauty and art should be. He was disappointed by in the direction that post-war Japan was taking. It embraced capitalism and Western-style living and the influence of the West, although he and his wife did go to Disneyland, which he liked. And I'm guessing, I haven't seen an explanation of why he liked it. I'm guessing he liked the blurring of fantasy and the, and reality, the fake reality and the artifice of it, the cleanliness, the performative aspects, the aesthetics of the place, the order, the precision. Disneyland is not real life. It's a version of it. And some people like that about it. Look at this. Imagine if only. And some people detest it. Oh, makes my skin crawl. It's fascist. It's a different take on it. It's not necessarily one is better than the other. Anyway, Mishima was studying martial arts now, and he was bodybuilding, and he bronzed himself in the sun, and he posed for a lot of pictures shirtless. He had also always had this thing about San Sebastian, whose torso had been pierced. He had seen a painting of that when he was younger, and it became obsessed with it. He would stage photos where he was in that position as well. He was a small man by most standards, five foot three, but you can tell he lifted weights for two hours a day for several years. His upper biceps are large. His shoulders are developed. He has a triangular body. His waist is thin. And according to Schrader, he never worked out his lower legs because those were not part of the aesthetic. And in particular, they were not useful to seppuku, the plunging of the sword into the stomach. There's a sexual component to seppuku, it's been remarked. One plays both the man and the woman in that role, the giver and the receiver, as the ancient sword, he claimed his was from the samurai era from the 1600s or something, I think, as the ancient sword plunges into the stomach that's the male and female aspects of it. That's what people say. Schrader says the stomach was significant as the site of the soul, in Mishima's way of thinking. He felt like his time was passing. As he was in his 30s and early 40s, he wanted to be known as a man of action, not just a writer. His writing, he believed, corroded him. Two years before he died, he published an essay called Art, Action, and Ritual Death. He wrote stories about seppuku. He wrote a short film in which he acted it out in detail. The film is called Patriotism. Soldiers and death and blood. This is what he wanted. He had wanted this his whole life. He was a warrior. In his view, and he turned himself into one, he was playing one now, even if the real army hadn't wanted him when his country was at war. And yet, as he aged, he was aware, he had a feeling that the play acting was turning pathetic and would continue to do so. He did not want to be old. He did not want his body to turn old. He did not want his looks to fade. He did not want that kind of a death. Schrader had an interesting observation about Mishima. He says he believes, Schrader believes that art is a way of discharging ideas, that it's a release, that in Schrader's case, for example, he wrote about Travis Bickle in Tra Taxi Driver. He wrote about him so that he wouldn't be Travis Bickle, and people went to watch Travis Bickle so that they wouldn't act like Travis Bickle. There's power in creating art or in observing art, participating in it, reading books. There's a power in reading about these things that keeps us from doing those things. There's catharsis. For Mishima, says Schrader, that release never came. 
The relief that Art could bring did not come. Instead, the art kept pushing him further toward the actual. His art was almost taunting him. Well, if this is the ideal, why haven't you done it? Why are you just writing about it? Do you lack courage? Your words repeated over and over only emphasize that you yourself are not a man of action. Mishima posed for photographs where he was committing suicide. He put yet more movies where he was dying. He orchestrated everything that he wanted to see. Photos that were supposed to be released days after his death. And they weren't. But he, it was like he was planning the circumstances around not just his death, which was carefully planned that final day on the balcony, but how it would be received by the public. It was a stage-managed death. In this context, we can put his death in a different context, I should say. You can see his death was not just a misguided attempt to overthrow the government. It was not comic in that way. He didn't think it would be successful as a coup. He thought it would be effective as a piece of theater, as a dramatic enactment of the death that he sought to achieve, a death that would embody his ideals, an aesthetic death. He cared about what he was wearing and about what those in the crowd would be wearing. He wrote about Hitler in Germany and Italy and the uniforms, the medals, the appearance, the aesthetic of the crowds. He needed that as part of his day was part of his performance, but it was more than just a performance, was the reality. It was part of his day of death, the way this all would look and appear and what it would represent, and then he got it. It was an ugly death in the end, vicious and drawn out and painful. But this part, the absurdity of it, the awful atrocity of it was only viewed by a few close associates. The rest, the people who were in the crowd, saw Mishima as he wanted them to see him. They didn't understand what was happening exactly. They thought it was anachronistic when they when people heard about it later. Well, the crowd didn't hear him. That was one problem. Some of them booed as they couldn't hear what he was saying from the balcony. And when people heard about this later and they heard that he had tried to call for a coup and overthrow the government, they thought, and then committed suicide by this ancient samurai way. They thought it was anachronistic and foolish. What was he doing? What was he thinking? Had he lost his mind? But he didn't necessarily expect the audience who was there that day to understand him. Nor did he expect people to take the idea of the coup seriously. He was looking to posterity. He wanted his death to be the kind of artistic culmination of a life, of a life that had been lived in fantasy and reality. He thought that for years afterward, people would look to his death as the embodiment of a kind of lost era of Japan, an era when Japan was proud and not just a society of equals, but one with great souls and great actors doing great things on a great stage. He was a product of the 20th century, a 20th century that in his 45 years looked back to the shoguns and samurais of his grandmother's stories and memories and forward to the world of modernization and globalization. And yet, as modernization and globalization wash over us, as people cling to parts of the past in Japan as in the rest of the world, there are plenty of people today who looked to Mishima not as out of touch and living in a fantasy, but as more like a prophet, a brave prophet who cautioned the world about what was to come and who had the courage to stand against the tide, holding fast to principles and memories and a devotion to a certain way of life, a culture, an aesthetic that was intense and Japanese and intensely Japanese. As long as Japan wrestles with its identity and self-image, it will look to Mishima, to the man who embodied those struggles, who put sex and death and fantasy and reality into the mix, an art who used literature as a platform until life 
was carried out like an artistic event, a fantastic reality, or a real-life fantasy, as hard to discern as the man who wears the mask until the mask replaces the man, maybe against the man's will, or maybe as the perfect expression of it. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Let's take a closer look at Mishima's novels and short stories and writings next time. There's plenty to look at there. My thanks to Angela and Mahmoud and the little one, the baby, our little, our newest little member of the History of Literature family. Hey, Jude. Welcome. Welcome, Jude. Hey, indeed. Hey to all three of you. Stay safe and be well and enjoy your time together. We are part of Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. Read about them at www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Way behind on my social media and website updating and all of that. Man, I could use some help there. I cannot. <laughs> Man, speaking of hats... Uh, I don't have time to put on all these hats, but I try. Anyway, historyofliterature.com has the most stuff, and we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, too. But Oh, and there's Patreon, patreon.com slash literature, if you'd like to help keep the lights on here at the Jack Wilson Studios. But let's leave all that aside, because we're so far behind. Frankly, we don't deserve anything these days. <laughs> we beg anyway, but we don't deserve it. We need to work harder, people. We will try and we will do our best. We're not planning a dramatic ending here. We're more of the get old and ugly and live as long as you can way of thinking. But who cares what you look like on a podcast? And who cares what you look like in life? That's always been my motto. The important thing is that you treat others well and you live the hell out of life. Just squeeze it for every drop. Whether you're writing a great book or reading a great book or maybe just reading something average, but you're in a great situation. Like maybe you're a married couple, newly married, newly in love with a three-month-old baby looking up at you with curiosity in his eyes and love in his heart. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.